Well, this morning, if you would, turn to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Mark 9, 2 through 13. From doubting Thomas to the questioner of today, we long to see the confirming glory of Christ in his kingdom, don't we? Sometimes we think if we were just to see this, we would understand or we would know. Well, three men got to see the power of the kingdom of God in six days after last text, at least about a week. Luke tells us it's eight. Mark tells us it's six. Jesus had said in verse one, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there could be several events that fulfill that particular prophecy, but one of them is what we're about to read. Follow along as I read 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, by your grace this morning, open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your word. May your spirit be powerfully at work within us. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with my mouth with all of our thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts, that they might be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that anything done, said, spoken here that might not be consistent with your own word shall pass away, not to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) You perhaps have heard coaches talk about the great athlete And how they seem to be different from the others because they have a certain presence. Or perhaps you've seen a natural leader, someone with what we call charisma. In the right circumstances, natural talents, gifts, and abilities are often revealed. But this is something beyond charisma. This is something beyond presence. It is something on an entirely different level. You see, this transformation that we read about here is revealing the true identity of who Jesus is from all eternity. 
very God of very God. What transformation then must take place when we are brought face to face with God? You see, because the transfiguration shows us the kingdom of God and the king, Jesus, we too should be transformed. In fact, here we're reminded of the revelation of Jesus' identity, the anticipation of the last day's glory, and the affirmation of messianic fulfillment. Look with me, first of all, at verse 2. He's with three disciples, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. They're often with him when he takes just a portion of the twelve. And they're led up a high mountain. We think perhaps a traditional uh, mountain that we think this may have been is Mount Tabor, although we don't really know. And it says he was transfigured before them. Now, one thing we know that this is a transformed appearance. In fact, this word transfigure is we get the word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. He was metamorphized in front of them. He was changed or transformed, and his true identity was revealed. Now, first of all, we have to understand this is not saying that the things around Jesus or the things Jesus was wearing. It says Jesus himself was transformed. And temporarily, he's assuming his true form. You see, he wasn't changed. He was just revealing to the disciples his true glory as God, the Son of God. His clothing, we're told, in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. His clothing then, exceedingly white. There's no natural explanation. Nobody could make it this white. I don't know what that means or how that works. In fact, we also know that in those days, it was unusual for someone to wear white clothing. You know, sometimes you get these pictures from Sunday school material or other things that everybody's wearing these white clothes all the time. No, they didn't wear white. It was too hard to clean. It was too hard to, to keep looking nice. All the stains would appear on it. And, and in those days, without modern laundry techniques, it probably wouldn't have gone away. So it's unusual that it was white to begin with, but here the exceedingly bleached white that no one could possibly have made it that white or that bright. But Jesus' identity is perhaps confirmed the most in what takes place in verse 7. A voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son. In fact, we're reminded by Matthew's account. Luke also gives us this account of the transfiguration. We're told that he not only says this, he says this Son this is my son with whom I am pleased. You might be reminded of another event in scripture, Jesus' baptism, where God said the same thing. God from heaven, a voice from heaven came and said, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Here again, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. He is a son of God. He's not merely man. Now, he is very man of very man. He took on a human presence. That's the whole point of the incarnation that Jesus took upon himself human form, was born just as you and I were. He had to grow and learn like you and I. 
He grew in wisdom and stature, all those things. But here it reminds us, Scripture does, in this event, that the Father declares him to be divine. And of course, all of this brings up a clear Messiah connection. Notice who appears with him. Moses and Elijah. That's kind of interesting. Elijah here, we know from history, from the Old Testament, we know that he didn't die like everybody else. He was translated. That is, he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. If you ever want that trivia question and, and they want to ask you how was Elijah taken up into heaven, no, he was riding in the fiery chariot, but it was the whirlwind that took him up into heaven. We're told that he didn't die. But Moses, it clearly says, died. Nobody knew where he was buried. God himself evidently buried Moses up on another mountain overlooking the promised land. But these two individuals from the past, they were centuries ago walking on the earth. One of them, we know, had physically died, and here they were. Moses here, in one sense, representing the law, but also were reminded of Jesus' person and his office of prophet. After all, Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, there would come someone, a prophet like me. He will speak the words of God and you must listen to him. And then Elijah, some say this means the section of scripture known as the prophets, a representative of the prophets, but really this is in essence like Moses, it is a prophecy about the times which were to come in even looking at the last age. After all, Malachi, which Gene read this morning, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, says that before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Elijah will appear. Here they are. Maybe this is the event it's looking towards, saying Elijah would come. Jesus tells us it's actually a different meaning expressed. But all of these things, the transformation of Jesus, the clothing becoming whiter than anyone could bleach them, the voice of God, and these connections with Moses and Elijah reveal the identity of Jesus as Messiah, divine, and the Son of God. I remember several years ago, because I'm a Pittsburgh Pirate fan, I remember the competition, the million dollar arm. Perhaps some of you remember this. They wanted to introduce baseball to the country of India where cricket is king instead of baseball. And so they had a competition. In this competition, the one who threw the ball the best would be signed to some sort of contract. One of them, his name was Rinku Singh, threw the ball very hard, in fact, close to 90 miles an hour, is over 80. He had never thrown a baseball in his life until he prepared for that competition. And he won it. He and another individual signing a minor league contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Against his, the wishes of his family, he moved to the United States and took up for four years a minor league schedule of an athlete learning how to pitch. Amazing. The first Indian professional baseball player. 
Now, years later, after his endeavor with baseball, he has become a professional wrestler. Who is this man? Coming from an athletic background of cricket and all the kinds of sports you would play in India to coming over to being a baseball player, now he's buff weighing 275 pounds as a wrestler. But all of this reminds us who he is. He is a gifted, committed athlete. But all of these experiences were set to reveal what gifts and talents he had. Well, here, Jesus, to the common eye, walking around, he was homeless. He was someone who was, had no place to lay his head, as scriptures tell us. He was traveling from place to place. He taught. He did amazing things. These revealed his identity. But this event reveals to us, brings back the curtain to tell us who this individual really is. This event exposes to us the identity of Christ in a new way. But what should that mean to us? Romans 12, verse 2, uses this word that's translated here, transfiguration. In that verse, it, Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This word transformed is the same word here, transfigured. In other words, let the curtain be pulled back to see how God is going to change you into something more glorious. And so as we understand that Jesus is Lord... Then, because the Holy Spirit reveals this to us, it should change our speech, our thinking, and our actions because we know Jesus is truly the Messiah and the Son of God. But it doesn't stop there. The transfiguration also anticipates the glory of the last day. Notice what takes place here. You see... The intensely white clothing. You see the transformation of Jesus himself. And then you see Peter here who has no idea what to do about all of this. But he's seeing this is the glory of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 to 18, I think it's printed on your outline in your bulletin. I don't know what I've done with mine, so I have to turn in my Bible to that. Peter reveals to us his idea specifically of the transfiguration. Now, of course, we think that Mark got his account from Peter, but Peter in this letter says this, For we did not know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He speaks of the glory of Christ as the majesty. And he speaks of the Father as the majestic glory. Think of this, the glory of Christ, his majesty. When we use those words, we think of someone who has honor, someone who has power, someone who has a, a, an appearance by which we are awestruck. 
in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews talks about Jesus being the radiance of God's glory. Radiance. The, the shining fulfillment of God himself. The glory of Christ is God's glory. But the other thing that takes place in this event is the glory of the Father. Peter didn't know what to say. They're all terrified, but he can't keep his mouth shut, evidently. A voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, you might just pass over that idea of the cloud. But this is really a biblical, biblical terminology. This refers to the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament. There's a link here. You know, the mountain, they're up on a mountain. You should have the link Mount Sinai. Here's Moses here meeting with Jesus. There's a link to Mount Sinai here. And the glory of God that the people were afraid to approach him. And particularly Exodus chapter 24, as Moses is going up the mountain with three individuals, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and then with 70 elders, as they approach the Father, they have to, in order to approach him, offer sacrifices. And Moses actually throws the blood of the sacrifices upon all the people because God is holy and they are not. And even for Moses and these elders to approach the holy God, they must have forgiveness of their sins. There's also a weak link here to Elijah and the Mount Horeb experience, the mountaintop experience, so to speak. But think of the Shekinah glory. How is it that God appeared to the Israelites in the wilderness? First of all, by a wilderness pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Exodus 13. In Exodus 33, as Moses is confronted with God and his glory. He says, can I pass, can I see your glory? And God says, I must let you pass by, but I must cover your eyes so you can't see me in the front, but as you go by, you'll encounter my glory. And he does. Exodus 40 tells us that once they built the tabernacle, the glory of God filled that tabernacle in such a way that the Levites could not carry out their duties. The same thing happened when the temple was built in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7. The glory of God filled the temple. And then we get this bizarre and strange book of Ezekiel, the prophet, where we're reminded in chapters 8 through 11 of the glory of God departing from the temple because of the sin of the people and the judgment that had come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, we're told of the return of Jesus. That too, the glory of God. You see, the glory of the Father is here, right here on the mountain with them. In fact, this word overshadowed, the cloud overshadowed them. You know, this word overshadowed is the exact same word that is used by which the Holy Spirit allowed Jesus to go into the womb of the Virgin Mary. He overshadowed her. There is a sense here in which they're enveloped 
by the glory of the Father. And of course, what, what happens? happens? I'm scared to death. Peter, Peter says, says things, things he doesn't, doesn't understand. Perhaps his thoughts were on the connection of all with the glory of God and Moses being there at Mount Sinai, and so he refers to tents. Isn't it, you know, what a strange thing to say. It's good that we are here. Let me build a tent for each one of you. It's almost as if he's thinking that they're going to park there and be there for a while. But it's just a temporary moment. And of course, what is the combination? Fear plus white robes. And of course, that refers to the angelic appearance of heavenly beings. In this case, the glorified beings of Moses and Elijah. Not angels, but men. The anticipation here of the last day's glory because you see it in the Father and in the Son, and you're reminded by Moses and Elijah that, that this was anticipation of the last day that Elijah would appear before then. But see that glory. Don't you wish you could be there? I do. You know, in our country, one of the things that we think about are the riches, perhaps, you maybe you haven't thought about this for a while, but the riches of Fort Knox. You know, Fort Knox is supposed to have all this gold. Now, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Are there really, is there really gold there, or is it just a mirage? I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I tend to think there probably is some treasure there. And so imagine if all the gold of Fort Knox that has been rumored to be there, if all that gold, you're brought into that room to see the glory of that gold. Imagine seeing it in person. Going from becoming the mysterious that no one is allowed to see to the reality of seeing that magnificent treasure in person. Well, that pales. That's nothing compared to seeing the real glory should God give us new awe for the triune God and appear before him. And yet at the same time, why is this glory so important to us? What should it do for us? Why should it have any importance to us? Well, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, we all, with unveiled face, referring to the, the veil of Moses, but now having that veil removed, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There's that word again. Transfigured, transformed. We are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, when we understand the transformed image of the Savior, which is revealing his true identity, we understand that if we really understand that glory of Jesus, then God will begin to transform us, not into the reality that we always were, but into the new reality of those whose sin has been removed and of those who are being sanctified and in the end, who will be glorified. We should worship him then with true awe. When you come to worship on Sunday morning, is it just a red activity? Or are you realizing you're coming in the presence by the Holy Spirit 
of the awe of God and all his glory. Verses 9 through 13, the last section of this, that was the transfiguration. Verse 8 reminds us, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So in other words, it was just an, an event that ended. And they're coming back down the mountain. Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. First of all, we're reminded here of the authority of Jesus. What did the Father say? Listen to him. You know, this was the one prophesied about back in Deuteronomy. You know, the, the one who was coming like Moses, who would have the words of God. You must listen to him. Here it is, the Father saying something different than he said at the baptism. He says who he is, and he says, I am pleased with him. By this point, he is now 30 or more years old. He has completely fulfilled all the law of God to this point. He's been perfectly obedient. He has come and he is willing to suffer. He has now announced the passion to his disciples here in chapter nine or chapter 8 earlier. And now the Father says, I am pleased with him. And this authority is embedded in him. Listen to him. And then you know what the disciples did? Jesus said, don't tell anybody. In fact, this is the only time when he says, don't tell anybody, and then says a, a time reference, until, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And it says they kept the matter to themselves. Jesus' authority was ingrained upon them, even though they didn't understand it. I mean, here they are questioning. What does this mean, rising from the dead? He just told them. He's told them in chapter 8. He told them here. This is the second time he's mentioned the passion. There's going to be another time. And later on in chapter 9, another time. In chapter 10, he's going to say, this is exactly what's going to happen. And they don't get it. But they do know he has authority. And of course, here's the significance of Elijah. They, they ask him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he affirms this particular prophecy. He says Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Here's the passion reference. But the significance of Elijah is this. In the affirmation of this messianic fulfillment, in other words, that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, what does he do? He restores all things things. Elijah comes first to restore all things. Now, Elijah couldn't accomplish that restoration himself. He comes first so that the things could be restored. Of course, Malachi 4 reminded us that families will be reconciled. In other words, there will be a restoration in families. In verse 12, we're reminded of Christ's passion and Moses and Elijah here Speak as the other gospel writers tell us the thing that they talked about on the mountain is Christ's departure. In other words, they're talking to him about the suffering and about the cross and about going up into heaven. And of course, this too is reconciliation, is it not? This is restoration that those who had sin by the cross of Christ would have that sin removed by his departure. Here it is, the atoning death of the cross. And then verse 13, 
a reminder about the interpretation of Elijah. In fact, Matthew makes it very clear here. It says they understood by this phrase, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. They understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Here he is. John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's purpose? To come with a ministry of repentance. What does repentance do? If we truly repent and believe upon Jesus, then our sins are forgiven. We're restored in our relationship with God. This is the reference here. And of course, the transfiguration then points to God's Christ. Again, the context here. Leading up to the end of chapter 8, who is this Jesus? He, he is, is he a prophet? Is he someone who is possessed by demons? Is he just a great teacher? You know, all these things. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Some people say you are John the Baptist raised from the dead. Peter then says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus begins to explain what that means. And he tells them this Christ is not the Christ that you think of, a political hero coming to reinstitute the nation of Israel. Instead, this is the Christ who will suffer and be crucified and rise again from the dead. Peter and the disciples did not understand that, even as he teaches that. And then he reminds them the implications of that. If you follow me, you too are going to suffer. Some of you will be martyred. Some of you will gain the kingdom of God but lose everything in this life. And then here is revealed again the glory of the Messiah. And a reminder that this is God's Christ, not man's. This is the suffering servant, the redeemer of sinful man. You know, during Christmas break, one of the days we had, we took our family and we ate at a local restaurant, Chili's in Carolina Forest. The waiter that day was going from table to table telling about how bad a day he'd had. About his cancer and a friend that had died of cancer. And about how everything in his day had just made it a horrible day. And he went from table to table. I don't know him personally. I don't know all the details. I, the cynical side of me may have thought he was trying to get a bigger tip. I don't know. But what was that waiter's job? His job wasn't to gain empathy. His job, regardless of the situation, was to serve and satisfy the customer. Simple as that. We want Jesus to be a lot of things that he wasn't meant to be. We want him to be a magician to give us all our greatest desires. We want him to remove from us all the suffering in this life. But that's not the purpose of the church. We want him to make everything just fall into place so we don't have to agonize and make difficult decisions or have to worry about things to come. But that's not the purpose of Jesus. The centrality of the mission of Jesus is to be the Messiah who will restore in fact, this mission wasn't even judgment. Now, he will be the judge because he is the Son of God, and that's part of his purpose. But his mission as Messiah was to restore the people of God and to reconcile all things to himself, not to divide, 
not so that we would get our way in everything we wanted, but that he would reconcile us by shedding his blood on the cross, by perfect obedience to the law, by the perfect atonement of the cross. And then what is the result? The transformed behavior and attitude that his people have in relating to others as they understand what a true servant is. You know, there have been a lot of changes in my life. I can think back now to when I was a child. I was a son. But by God's grace, I became a father. That's a big transformation. I went from being a student who'd been in school for many, many years to becoming a pastor, still a student, and yet responsibilities that are different. I went two times from becoming a Midwesterner to a Southerner back to a Midwesterner and to a Southerner again. And yet this Southern place seems so different because there's all these Yankees here too. <laughs> and I think of all these changes in my life. Some of the changes have been I've understood who I am more fully, who my, where my gifts lie and my talents, where my calling is and, and those things. But what is it that this transfiguration should remind us of? That when we peel back the curtain of our own life, and we remove all the gloss that we give. We do. After all, how many of you came in here with a big frown this morning to say how awful the day was? We gloss that. And sometimes we, we put on a front and a, uh, in front of other people, even about what we're good at or, or what our interests are or where our gifts lie. And the transformation of us is this. God knows who we really are. But if we believe in Jesus, God has begun to transform us from glory to glory. That is the glory to be made in the image of God, yet broken and marred because of our sin, to now having that sin removed so that when God looks at us, he sees the true glory of the reflection that we are supposed to be to God, to one day making it so none of us will choose to sin again, but we will spend all eternity glorifying God and we will have the glory of being in his presence forever. That's the transformation. That's the transformation revealing us what Jesus really is, the divine son of God who was willing to become the Messiah for us and what he will transform us to be. Someone who begins not only to follow Jesus, but to be a true servant in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we ask the question sometimes, how can we be changed this way? It's by your word and by your spirit. You tell us on that mountain, or you told Peter and James and John and all of us by their testimony, listen to him. Lord, help us to listen to Jesus through your word. Help us to listen to Jesus, the living word. Help us, Lord to obey, not to earn your favor, but because you are transforming us by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.